Hello and welcome to the Dad and Sons podcast. A very special episode, may I add. Finally, we have enough game developers that will outweigh the balance of the show. I am now not just one. I have an army. But that will come later. First of all, we have the dads back all together. The three of us, the powerhouses, have returned to bless your ears once again. We have the wonderful George Wiedemann. You, you got us for, for like an hour or so until until the tides are turning. Yeah, you have to wait. I feel like we shouldn't even name the show featuring the guest. Oh no, George, you already spoiled it on Twitter. So that's irrelevant. You all know who's coming later. Please don't skip ahead. We have games to talk about. And then we can have Greg soothe your ears later with his wonderful voice and conversations about inevitably Hades. Um, but also on his return, the the master, the sexy man, the man with the voice, he's back with the plan. It's a new game developer himself. It's Mr. Matt Visual. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Game developer, right? I did all this work. There's there's footage of it on the Discord. <laughs> I tried to add a huge gun to the fucking <laughs> game. A huge gun. Just to see what would happen at that moment when I press play on Game Maker <laughs> Studio 2 is when my SSD, my C drive, my NVMe that I've had for a few years now the, the Samsung 960 Evo decided to die. I just at love that like... moment. Why at that moment? I have no idea. The the gun that you tried to make was was too epic. It was too big. I feel like Matt just became too powerful. You you were you were moving at such a fast pace, and you were you were so getting so good. You were becoming a game developer, oh and then Game God. Maker was like, shit, we're going to have to put yeah. a stop to that. I was just designing levels <laughs> and doing some coding. I absolutely adore what, like, th this this story has the quality of an 11-year-old who didn't get his homework turned in. Like, and then I tried to make a game, and with, as soon as <laughs> I made a I big gun, gun, my as computer soon as broke. I added a gun. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is be a lesson. <laughs> be a lesson. Don't add guns, kids. Don't add big guns. Gun control. Don't add guns. Gun Express control. gun control. Gun control. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you been back on it since you you, you got a new laptop, right? Or, or have you kind of are you afraid to add guns? <laughs> so I actually, I was able to hop back on, right? And I was like, oh, wow, that was weird. Remember when I hopped back on Discord? Mm. And then I dragged the file into one of my other drives because uh, Game Maker saves it on a C drive. I couldn't figure out, after I replaced the drive, I couldn't figure out what was going on with my, my PC. Turns out I might have had a power surge that might have wrecked oh. my motherboard. But I also, on top of that, after I replaced the motherboard, I was having a Windows problem with the Windows build being too old that I was installing. And I was just like, oh, no. Yeah, so Windows with, uh, with new hardware, with an older build, 
if you keep crashing when you load up Windows, that might be the issue <laughs> for anyone who, who, who gets that issue later on. And it took me it took me days of buying shit and go, oh my god, and while working, it ah uh, this like all your free time is just gone. Um, but I got back, and after I got back, I I got a big project, and I haven't been able to like sit down and actually like uh get back to where I was because I have to do all that coding again. <laughs> I have to make him run and not fall through the level and <laughs> and all that again and then build that that whole nice level that I did. Hello. You did do a nice level. I feel like you should at least release the footage uh on the on the community discord so people can see then it's real. It was real. Yeah, yeah. We were going it's, through it's, it. It's 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 very amateur. It's very amateur, but you know, it was cool. It was cool that I like. Oh, I I made that. You I did this. You yeah. did it. Yeah, it, it was, was super cool to see. More, yeah. more more about the the journey than the destination. I mean, it's exactly. A, it's, it's a fun story. <laughs> God dang it! I'll I'll come back to it after everything's done. We had fun on the Discord not that long ago, watching me stumble making a game in a day. And it was all about the journey. And it was a lot of fun. Making games is fun. You just you just sit there and just, just cold. Just cold the the whole game. Yeah, so it's more it's more about like I think for me personally, understanding what your limitations are in terms of how you can program means that you can sort of understand what you can do in a certain amount of time. So obviously the Ludum Dare, which is one of the biggest game jams in the world globally, just went by. And I, I don't do game jams that often. Obviously, it's kind of like a busman's holiday. If anybody knows the idiom. Where I get to sometimes experiment with some stuff that maybe I want to do. Yeah, and we de- I decided, uh, you know what? I had the, the theme for the Ludum Dare this year was uh, stuck in a loop. And I kind of had an idea that I was messing with already. So I just sort of went through with it. And uh, streamed all day in the community Discord. And we made a game in a day with some lovely dead sons, mothers, and daughters listening. And watching, and uh, yeah, uh, made a game called oh. Athletic Loop, which is, um, it was like a, basically a non-stop hurdle javelin clay pigeon contest. Do you find yourself more, or, right, right, more or less productive when strangers from the internet are watching you? More productive. Yeah. I can't alt-tab into Twitter and stop browsing Twitter, or, you know, I'm afraid to bring up my own google chrome for fear of embarrassing bookmarks or previous yeah. history appearing as i type if i type p into the search bar and- <laughs> there's a lot that could be a lot yeah man oh yeah there's there's a lot Dude. of fun words that begin peanut with butter sandwiches uh red r slash peanut butter sandwiches uh, you know those embarrassing places of course. Uh, yeah, no, but I find myself way more productive because you, you, you know, you're just at the task that people came to watch. And I had fun. Yeah. And then we played some Formula One like we always do. So that was a good. That was a good day. That was about two weeks ago, I think. I guess the question is, what are you more embarrassed by? Um, the unfinished work you're showing to the audience or or potential autocomplete. um revelations i'm not afraid of any incomplete work i think there's a great thing going on twitter right now which is 
where it started, where it ended, like people are doing that meme, but a lot of game devs are like showing what the prototypes of really popular games were like in the beginning and then what mm. the final product looks like. The Sea of Thieves one is hilarious. It's just literally colorful capsules with hilarious faces and like dorky pirate hats. And it looks so like the best student prototype ever. And that's what turned into Sea of Thieves. And that's kind of what like unfinished games are like. It's, it's, it's good fun. It's good fun. Isn't Sea of Thieves still unfinished? Oh, snap. Oh, I don't know. It's got a, I haven't played it in a long time. It's got a large know. player base. I've always tempted because it's on Xbox Game Pass. Yeah. I'm always like, I, oh, I, I could play it, but then I need I people to play, to play it. it. Yeah, yeah. I gotta play it. I definitely gotta play it. I just gotta. Find you gotta get route. back to making games, Matt. That's where you gotta get back to. I want to <laughs> see that progress again. I want to see all that speedy work you were doing and having fun. I want to see it again. There, after this project is done, which is just gonna take a while, it seems. Then I'll get back on it for sure. <laughs> You gotta put your hard drive back I got, together I get, next time. I, I'm gonna pay the bills first. <laughs> I gotta pay the bills first. <sighs> well, speaking of paying the bills, boys, we're here to talk about games, and we were a bit pressed for time today because of uh, our wonderful guest coming later. Super excellent guest. Super, super wonderful. Ex- super giant, super good. Giant in guest. the world <laughs> guest. And so, with that, like, what have you guys been playing? Because Matt's obviously not been here for two weeks, so he must have finished about oh, fifty God. games by now. But he's been working oh. on projects, so maybe he only finished. 25 games uh, maybe only 25 matt oh it's as good as you thought it would be george just wants to talk about squadrons again but oh, also an so additional good. game oh. i've yet to try squadrons in vr that's like my next week thing oh. i've been worrying about having surgery too much so i kind of put that off but matt oh. like let's start with you because <sighs> you know you've got a two-week lead up to here what, what the hell's been going on in your world i Tried a couple games. Ooh. Looking on Steam. Um <laughs> You're not gonna you're not gonna know what this is. Uh Feral Rebirth. Um, now is that spelled with a P or an F? A, like a Pharrell Rebirth? Yeah, yeah, like Pharrell Rebirth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the minutes I played on Steam. I I haven't got deep into it yet, but it is another Metrovania in a way. Uh, with stage select, it, it reminds me of what was what it? Tau Luna Nights is that what it's called? You know that you know that game everyone likes. I, I feel like there's there's several games named Lunar Nights that. Oh, the like Toho one. Toho, that's oh that's it. yeah that's yeah it. yeah. People love that shit. What is this game called? Sorry, Feral Rebirth. Pharrell. <laughs> Pharrell Rebirth. <laughs> oh, of course it's a. Feral Rebirth Plus. Is it like a cross something squared as well? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I can't I can't even I can't even Google it and find it. I can't even find it. Feral Fury Rebirth on Steam. Feral Interactive. <laughs> Feral Blue. Is it good? It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It it is the only problem with that game is that a little frustration can creep in because if you do not save at a save point and you die, like imagine you you have a save point right before a boss, you beat mm. the boss, you go to the next level, the very uh, beginning of that level, you have to jump off a moving vehicle onto a train and you just happen to press forward just for a split second and you roll off the vehicle and die. 
you have to start all the way back at that save point and beat the boss again and then uh, do that part again. No. That is that is some old school shit right there. That is some mm. old school shit. Um I am I am tempted <laughs> to, to, to buy, buy the Nintendo power and look up the code for <laughs> for, for Yeah, that 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 is a rough one. I but I did play a lot of Monster Boy. Monster Boy, that's cute. That that one you you have to have heard of that one. That sounds that sounds cute. Yeah, and the Cursed Kingdom, right? Monster yes. Boy and the Cursed Kingdom. Yes. Yeah, that's cute. I haven't played it, but it looks the animation looks brilliant. It reminds me of the other one. What is the other one that came out on Switch? Wonder Boy. Wonder Boy? Wonder Boy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Wonder Boy and Monster Boy. Yeah. Yeah, Wonder Boy the Dragon's Trap, right? Are they the same series? I don't know. I forget. I don't think so. I don't actually like the art style, believe it or not. It seems like it could go both ways. Like, it looks good, but kind of generic. Yeah. It's the reason why I never played it. They are technically the same series. Oh, really? Yes. You can see a bit of the the, the coherency of of the boy cinematic universe art style. So, yeah, in Japan, it was called Monster World. So... Mm. And then uh Dra- Oh, we just get Monster Boy, okay. And then Dragon's Trap was a remake, whereas this is a completely new game. I really like the animation. It does look a little mobile game. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. It looks a little mobile bubbly. game. A little bubbly. And it plays it, it plays good. It actually plays good and the music is really good. Yeah. I mean really good. It's almost I'm guessing it takes from a lot of like popular games like Mario and all that. I'm assuming mm. it's because it's a remake, right? It's a remake from something in the past. So this know. is this is a new game in the series, but yeah, Wonder, oh. Wonder Wonder Boy: The Dragon's Trap, the previous one on Switch, that was a remake. Whereas this one is brand new, so it's like kind of a sequel, mm. just following in the same thing. Yeah. The music is done by y- Yuzu Kushiro, so I'm not surprised that the music that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Sounds good. Yeah. I mean, if without that music, I think the game would be less good. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> like not to say it's a bad game because mechanically that game is great. I mean, level design great. It's just something is missing for me. Something that's missing that's, that just grabs you know what when you play a Metroidvania you just like fuck I need to finish this because Bloodstained I couldn't <laughs> stop playing that game regardless how mediocre that fucking game is I kind of want to go back and play it <laughs> I don't know why is this something about it it just felt good comfort but Monster it. Boy doesn't have that and did I can't you, put my finger on it did you get all the way to the end here or no 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 i i haven't got a chance yet because because I, I, I was just about to say like my god at that point it feels like you've played all of them is there a metroidvania <laughs> left on the list i no no there isn't there yeah isn't. If, i had if, to if dig deep for this I had to dig deep. You, you you're down to monster boy at this point and and the genre is called metroidvania <laughs> and there's like 12 of metroids and castlevanias but only so many boys and and you're you're there, like you you might be scraping the I'm bottom scraping of the bottom this of barrel. barrel here. <laughs> I'm really scraping <laughs> the bottom of the barrel. You know, you got Hollow Knight, and then you got <laughs> everything else. You got Dex. <laughs> Dex was a good one. Uh, I mean, I, I like I like playing the indie games. Like you can really see like 
where the money where the money goes to you know like where people don't have enough money to like create great art or something like that but the game is actually pretty fucking good you know like that that's dex right there you know i i just it's so fascinating to play want to say that i did google a list of the best metroidvania games ever and you have there's a lot on here that that you've done i don't know how much there is left anymore yeah this is probably not i probably played all of them i probably played all of them. I, I never heard you talk about the shantae games uh i don't know it's the same okay. thing with um monster boy it's just like it just has that look that's just like ah that's that I don't look. know. That look. It seems too like <laughs> like mainstream Metrovania. You know, like main <laughs> that's what it is. Mainstream oh, no. Metrovania, you know, for for the normies, you know. The normies. <laughs> for the normies. Yeah. Eventually we'll try it. <laughs> I need to finish Monster Boy, which is on my main computer, which is at the office. Which I need to just grab a little copy of or something. <laughs> yeah. So so now you're split between a laptop and a gaming computer, and this is what you've been playing on your main gaming computer. Yes, yes. Well, well I mean, I can roll down the laptop. The laptop is not that bad. That's was pretty good. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I I'm pretty sure I played stuff before. Um, the reckoning of my uh, of my uh, C drive, but I can't <laughs> I can't remember. I did play over the weekend. Some Baldur's Gate 3. <gasps> so this is what I want to talk about as well. I didn't know that you'd be coming up here talking about Baldur's Gate. So I'm happy that we're both on the same page. Yeah. That's all I've done all week as well, <laughs> which is play Baldur's Gate 3. How are we digging it? How are we how what are we thinking? Um, so I played like I think as much as you did when you talked about it, like ten hours. Um, I it, it's 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 buggy. It's it's not the only bug that really actually bugged me was uh, <laughs> uh Will <laughs> Will uh he, I when you save when Will is walking back from that fight with the goblins. I haven't done that. That's literally what I'm about to go do. That's where I'm at. Wait, so don't save. During that whole thing. Wait, as in in front of the gate or where you, where you after you party up with him and, and, and go? No, in front of in front of the gate. You have oh, this okay. fight I've, with I've, him. I, yeah, I've, I've done yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, you've done that. Okay, I was about to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you have this fight and you save, he bugs out. And I went and I couldn't figure out what happened. I was like, why can't I talk to him? Why can't he just keeps repeating the same line? Oh, you have plenty of time to talk to me later. And I'm like, what? I'm like. I'm supposed to be able to recruit you. I'm like looking up online and then I found out that that's what happens. So for anyone having that issue. I didn't even see him before the goblins. He jumped into the fight for me. Yeah, he like jumped. I, he jumped in. No, no, that's yeah. that's what I'm talking about. He jumped into the fight. And when you save after that fight, oh. if he if when he's walking, if you save, <laughs> he glitches and stops. Oh, right. OK. Yeah. So so I, I went back two hours to get him. Ooh. <laughs> yeah ouch Ooh. so this ouch. is the thing i have had a lot of bugs a lot and like when i first start playing in the first 10 minutes i need to get over them for me to enjoy it because i feel like early access gets a bad rep sometimes people expect that this is what all games in early access are like but actually for the most part most games come out 
pretty polished. Mm. This game is fucking the bare bones of what polish is. Like, yeah. honestly, I love Larian, and I actually, I, yes. I think I love this game too. But, oh boy, baby, if you have zero tolerance for issues, then don't play right now, because it's, it's frustrating me, and I tend to have, like, a really high tolerance for these kind of things. So I've had two bugs that, are really, that have really fucked me over, and I've had to go back. One was, uh, I couldn't go to camp. Oh my god. I couldn't. I could never go to camp. Like the button was bugged out. Like it wouldn't bring up the dialogue box to say yes or no for allowing me to go to box. Uh, go back to camp. Whoa. So I could never rest any of my spells. I could never rest any of my party, and I couldn't get all of the tidbit information in between. You know, doing you stuff and going to camp. So I had to go back like three hours. Go back to a quick save that I had that I knew I could rest at camp, and I just did something else instead. And there was another one where every time I try to see a quest on the map when i press the show on map button doesn't work doesn't work so i never know i I click on the quest and i'm like show the map and it never opens up the map it never shows me so but i'm kind of that one doesn't bother me so much because i just click out and then look at the mini map and i can see on the mini map where it wants me to go but yeah and on top of that, it's just like this frame rate issues everywhere. Like every time I go into a cutscene, the cutscene pauses for like 10 seconds and enemy, like, um, you know, NPCs are just kind of like frozen. Yeah. You, you see them go like this. Yeah. And they'll jank around and they'll bob up and down <laughs> and people glitch out all the time. And like, this takes Bethesda for a ride. Honest to God. Like, it's, it's rough. And they told everybody this was how it's going to be, which is fair. They they were like, it's early access. It's going to crash. It's going to be buggy. I've had three crashes. Yeah. But I didn't yeah. quite... I, I know it sounds moronic almost to say, but I didn't expect it to be this bad, actually. I thought they were kind of just covering their own ass. Yeah. And just being like, hey, you should expect this. And then when you don't have any of those issues, you're like, oh, this is a pretty good game. But... From like the get go, I just you know bugs and bugs and bugs and bugs and bugs and bugs poly- everywhere. everywhere. Um, but putting that aside, <laughs> when I actually get to play the game and I get to do all the talking and I get to do the D and D combat and I get to roll like dice, persuasion checks. I fucking twenties love this game. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's the closest you can get to D&D. It's so good. It's overwhelmingly, like, I can't wait for the finished product of this game that is super polished to come out because it is going to be one of the best RPGs ever, I think. It It is. It is fantastic. The characters. The characters are incredible. Have you been to the Goblin Camp? Not yet. No, that's what I'm about to go do. Oh like, my God. Okay. I'm I'm in the tiefling like little cave thing now. Right? Oh, I and haven't I haven't done that one. So when I when you you know fight with Will in the beginning and you go into the gate and then you yeah. see everybody in there like you it's in basically I'm just in there. Oh, okay. But yes, the, the eyes, the eyes. You see the eyes, right? Mm. That, yeah, like the guy you told to, and he's he's got like lava in his eyes, basically. Oh my god, that is the greatest thing! I was like, I want so eyes cool. like that. I'm a teethling, <laughs> so I'm like, I want eyes like that. Oh, what the? So fuck? yeah, so this is what I want to ask you. Okay, so what class are you? What race are you? And who's in your party right now? I am a male teethling. He is a 
a beautiful man. Um, he is a wizard. Oh, he is a wizard. I don't usually go for the wizard. I usually like you know getting face first. But I realize in these games that being far away is just always better. <laughs> it's just mm. always better. Like you're just never. It's just never good to be close. Well, not that it's, it's not. never good. It's yeah. It's, it, you you have more options when you're far away. You know. Uh. So I I just I'm a wizard. I could freaking like teleport to someone and blast them away. You know, if 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 the fucking roll is good. <laughs> hmm. Um, and <laughs> what, what was the other one? You said class. So race. Uh, so race and class. Uh, yeah. And who's in your party currently? <laughs> oh, okay. Will, what, what what sociological demographic are you? <laughs> yeah, I I don't like the wizard. I love the Gif Yankee. But you are a wizard, so you don't need Yeah, him. but I don't okay. like him personally. I love the Gif Yankee. I can understand it. Yeah, okay. Love, love the Gif Yankee. She is such a good character. She is perfection. She's like, did you play the part where um, you're in the Grove? Have you, have you been to the Grove? No, that's where I'm about and to go. And she threatens. Oh. Okay. There's a part where, okay. Okay, I can't talk about, ah! So, so it's funny you say that. So I'm a... I'm a drow because yeah. I wanted the sea in the dark powers and like I wanted that all of that. And I'm a rogue because yeah. I wanted to be all sneaky like. Yes. Okay. But that's good. it doesn't yeah. really work. And now this is Aww. one of the criticisms I do have of Baldur's Gate and you are 100% right, which is Range's boss. And all that matters in it is Range's boss. Yeah. Getting close to enemies in this game is super hard, even with jump. And if you do, you get fucking bludgeoned to death quite quickly. Yeah. yeah. So unfortunately, as soon as Will came along, I kicked the Gith Yankee out. <laughs> <gasps> only because, and I felt bad doing it, only because I want to try with Will, because I can't let go of the wizard and I can't let go of the druid. Because yeah, range yeah. is boss. So because I'm not a wizard, I have to have the dumb, yeah. misogynistic, stupid wizard. And I don't like him. And he's a twat. I don't like him at all. But yeah, I have he's... to have him because he's literally the most useful party member. And me being a sneaky rogue, I'm trying, but I, I, I'm not, like, I can't right now, like, I don't have the, the skill yet that allows you to teleport. I, I have with the wizard, I have it, but not with my own character. Uh, um, miss misstep or miss misstep, yeah. yeah. But definitely, like once you get close, you can do some serious damage. And like if you throw things and like you know stun enemies or like make them on slippy surfaces and stuff, you can get closer. But it's a dangerous game getting close and getting mobbed by enemies in melee combat, especially at low levels. So it ranges boss. So I had to like put you know. Lazel or whatever her name is, the Githyanki aside for a minute so I can have Will. And, uh, you know, he had a cool rapier. So, yeah. But I am loving it. It's great. I, do you know what I do wish, though? And this is a stupid request as well, Matt. Yeah. I wish there was more visible dice rolls. Yes. So I, I wish in I combat when you did like a spell or something that is like you're not your basic attack or whatever. I wish you could see the roll. Like, yeah. I wish you could see it because it just feels like an XCOM percentage right now. 
Yeah, and I don't like it. I and don't, it doesn't feel like D and D. That's where the D and D goes away, right? Like, uh, yes, um, especially yes. like you're right next to someone. Mm. I mean, they show the like the disadvantage and advantage off in the corner. Yeah, the yeah, but they don't show you the like like the roll. Like, if it says like one d twelve damage, like I, I like okay, so roll the one d twelve so I can see it and see how much damage I'm doing. And the chat doesn't show it to the right, right? No, it it just shows the number above the enemy's head when you hit them. Yeah. Yeah, I I I just I I just unless I've missed yeah. it, but I just I wish I just not like the the D20 pers- like checks that you do for talking yeah. and stuff like that, which is lovely and I fucking love it. I absolutely love, love it. even it's when so I fun. fail a roll, I love it. I just wish there was maybe like tiny dice above your character's head that rolled every time you did it. <laughs> it would feel more like D&D to me. You only get the natural twenty animation, oh, which yeah, needs critic- to be cleaned up. Yeah. The critical hit one, yeah, because the camera, the camera always cuts. It needs, yeah. there needs to be a sound effect for the natural twenty. There needs to be a sound effect, like a headshot, like it has to happen. And the camera always cuts to like in the environment or something stupid. Yeah, um, it, it's, it's pretty not, funny. It's, yeah, yeah. But I think like, <sighs> oh, Shadowheart, the Gift Yankee, and Will. Okay, right, yeah. So yeah. I have, I have the the Shadowheart. I have Shadowheart and. Will and the wizard currently. I really like the vampire's personality, but I'm a rogue, so I don't need him. I, I like how your party lineup is like the wizard, the the exotic alien fantasy race, and then just Will. <laughs> just and Will. Will. It's <laughs> like, spelt it's spelt with a Y, so it's fantasy enough. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. <laughs> um, but right now, I like I'm. I th- I'm I'm having a blast. Like I need ten minutes to like lower my jank level and like get over <laughs> it being buggy yeah. and textures popping out and stuff. Um, and then I'm straight in. Um, I stay and play for like three hours. I'm using this time, this early access time, to get used to the combat, to get used to what they're doing. Mm. So I know exactly what I want when I really play the game. I'm like, okay, you know, when this this is out. I'm I'm ready to play a wizard, or I might want to try this out, or I might want to try this out. Because you know, you just don't get that time when you you play the game from fresh. You know, you you just like you, you don't want to start over. You just want to keep going. <laughs> You're like, ah, oh, I'll just get used to it. Ah, uh, I don't really like my character anymore, but yeah, you know, it's whatever. <laughs> you know, I hate I hate that. I hate that. Yeah, so I'm kind of bored of my drow already. I mean, your guy, your tiefling looking hair is pretty sexy, pretty sexy dude. Dude, dude. dude. I, I, they need this. They need to fix up the, the animations, though. They need to be making him looking all weird and shit. And I'm just like, come on, man. <laughs> Our boy is sexy, man. What are you doing to him, man? As <laughs> soon as to- those cutscenes are like more polished and they run correctly, oh, I, yeah, it's yeah. gonna be great. It's gonna be grand because when you get a cutscene that looks grand and just works, you're like, oh yeah, Ooh, this is, it does. Yes, yeah. this is next level Dragon Age nonsense. That this is good. And I usually play like, I would say like. Most of the time, I like to play a woman because woman characters are just better to look at, right? Mm. Whoa, they they are. I mean, I'm I'm a guy, but here, <laughs> finally, the male characters look good. They are pretty. <laughs> they are, they pre- are. They look good. You know, they, are they, pretty, they pretty have fantasy an ass, boys. which is great. You know, like it's good. You know, th- this this is gonna kind of interestingly fold over into some questions we got for Greg in a hot minute. 
but I did want to ask about, I prefer generally to wait until early access is over and the thing is out, but between what you guys just said and some reviews I had read of Hades, there's like some some writers making the case for playing a game during early access because of that element of replayability. Like Hades is a game built all about replayability and there's some reviewers who felt that a um, something kind of intended in the experience might have gone missing when they added a deliberate end to the game. You guys are relatively enjoying Baldur's Gate 3 on the idea that you're going to be deleting these characters and starting over with a different one. Do you think that's like more enjoyable way to play this game? Like, like, am I missing out on the guilt-free replayability of like using a trash character on an incomplete build of the game? Mm, it does feel a little bit like if you... For example, I'm a bit worried that, you know, I only, I only tend to play games once because there's so many games and mm. not enough time that for me personally, this game, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm having such a blast with this game. Other than that, that if maybe I wasn't going to try out the full vision at the end, I would be a bit disappointed that my experience of this game was on such a build um and that you know that one character i start with and make those key decisions that i don't know anything about and everything's a surprise was kind of a bit incomplete but i can imagine having fun going back and doing different things on a more polished version of this game um it's a dnd character right like you sometimes get attached uh, and then sometimes you want to be a warlock and fuck people up and you wouldn't do that on your main right Make make war on their locks. Like old Twitter accounts where you can get to fuck with shit. I kind of want to, like, I can see runs of dumb shit, like potato only runs where people just throw potatoes at people and like really <laughs> so dumb stuff. Like some of the amazing <laughs> stuff you can do in terms of combat, like throwing <laughs> shit at people. Once I realized you could pick stuff up and throw it. Oh my boy. Wow. That's role playing. And let me say, like the game is fucking hard. You really got to think outside hard. the box. <laughs> you can't just rock in there. Let me tell you, like, like uh, there is the fight when you're trying to save this place is rough, bro. You got to do it in parts, <laughs> you know, like it's, you got to be sneaky with it. Like, it, oh my God. It's like being at war. It's, it's attrition. <sighs> like the dead that you had to fight to open the coffin in the, in the, whatever it was, the underground cave mm -hmm. beneath the church. Like, yeah. that fight fucking took me at least four or five tries. Like, because the dead would just do, like, flaming burst or, like, magic missiles on me and immediately wipe all my health out. And I was like, what the fuck? But then once I went around and took all their weapons away from them while they were dead and then triggered the fight, they had no really? weapons. Yeah. I funneled them down the corner. I had nice. everyone wait, and every time they would walk, I would just, I would just, everyone will just focus on that one character. <laughs> See, it's that kind of dumb shit that you can do in this game that makes it really unique and and really enjoyable in that. Game. Yeah, like I mean, you're you're so you're supposed to. I I remember this. There's this room filled with explosives, and there's like like three high level dudes in there with really good gear, and you can go in there and try to talk. Yeah, I ain't doing that shit. <laughs> so you can teleport to the top and walk over into the room and shoot <laughs> fire <laughs> into the room, and the it explodes. 
explodes. The pop of that sound oh, is so satisfying. So and it, it actually explodes outside the room and spreads fire everywhere. But, you know, whatever. Who cares? I went down and got my loot. I had amazing fun finding the change my appearance spell. And like, oh, really? Changing my appearance of my main character and then like separating away from my party and then running around to talk to people I've already talked to and then being like, well, hello, good sir. I've never seen you around here before. <laughs> it's like, whoa. And I save wow. somebody as like a, as myself, like yeah. in my normal visual. And then I, I saved her from an assassin. And then I got this coin from her. And then I changed my appearance, talked to her again. And she had all the same voice lines about like, oh, thank you for saving me. You're with this party. And then at the end, she was like, I would reward you with this coin. And then she goes to, into a pocket and she's like, but I've been pickpocketed. Damn. <laughs> like she doesn't have the coin. This sounds like immersive sim stuff. Like this sounds like deus ex stuff. There's some dumb. And the thing is like you talk to every character as your main, but you don't have to. You can talk to every character as whatever the party leader is. So you can choose to be any of the other party members and then talk to characters and you'll have whatever the skills are. One thing I learned really early is to look at what the skills are for each character and be like, if I need like a historical check, I will change to that character as the party leader and then click on the thing I need to check. So then they will do the skill check. And just dumb shit like that. It's like if you're with a real party, you're playing with other people, you'd be like, oh, I'm going to ask my druid to check the arcane skill of like this forest or something because they're the person who are definitely going to roll the highest. There's a lot of that kind of stuff with it. And you can also, within conversation, move your party around who is not having the conversation and get yeah. into a better position. Oh, oh, yeah. that's I pretty, don't remember last time phenomenal. they let you do that. Yeah. It's wow. Pretty phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. That's what? It, it, it's <laughs> there's a lot that you're gonna miss, like first time around. Um mm-hmm. and it will take a couple of tries. Or, you know, that first experience where you just do something dumb and then you never do it again, but you'll have that one memory of the time you threw a potato at a goblin's head and it worked and you're like <laughs> I rolled a D20 crit on a potato throw to some <laughs> dude's he head. And slipped and he went prone. Yeah, and he yeah. went prone. And then you set him on fire. And yeah, it's... That was the end of that. I'm having a blast. I just... Yeah. I mean, it's selfish. You know, it's in early access. They've sold over a million copies already. So fingers crossed. Like, while I'm playing, it's a super long game. It gets better and better in terms of stability. And then... I mean, you need to get the blessing from the goblin camp from this from this guy. There's a human guy in the goblin camp. It's hard to miss. Go to him. Yeah. And he's going to ask you, oh, I sense the pain from you. And you're going to say yes. Shadowheart is just going to goat you to do it. And you're going to say yes, because I want you to experience that. All right. All right. All right. No more. No more. No more. I'm a bit worried because the, well, because of something else, but okay. 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 Okay, I want to okay. go to the crazy Irish lady's house as well. So, oh, I, I haven't done that either. Sure, I need to. I need to explore around a bit. There's so the, the game gives you so There's many options. So it's like, how do you cure this? Well, here's ten options for you to explore, and you're like, mm-hmm, I know all of these are gonna fuck me up, but one. So let's go with it. I feel like I went to the end of the game, and <laughs> I should have leveled up with all the rest of the, the whole map, basically. 
Oh, damn. I'm only 10 hours in. I'm having a blast, though. That's good. We're going to be moving over to to Greg any any minute now. But before we do, I just want to reassure everyone once again, Star Wars Squadrons is still good. I'm still just like, I don't I don't know if you guys saw my 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 Twitter this weekend or whatnot, but I played a stream on Friday. Yeah, you're obsessed. Yeah, I didn't plan to have as like silly, ridiculous uh, a gamer moment as, as I did a couple times on that stream. But if you guys want to watch me still have fun with video games, uh, uh, <laughs> t- t- tune in on uh, any respective moment where I'm playing Star Wars Squadrons on Twitch. I feel like I'm halfway to two thirds of the way through the campaign. We've, uh, we've, we've, we've switched sides a couple times now. There's still nothing really that I can really pinpoint is, is a great big flaw of this other than the now my, my number two flaw on the list from, from not knowing what buttons were last time is that sometimes the mission objectives will be a little glitchy. Like it'll be, um, Oh. Uh, this is something that might all be patched by the time you guys play the game, but there was uh, one one instance where I had to shoot a fragile door that was supposed to blow up and it, it wouldn't. For some reason, it spawned in with unlimited health. Uh, sometimes <laughs> mission critical ships will like not spawn in. It's stuff that is usually fixed with a retry. Uh, I did find a current tentative solution to my problem of button blindness that I mentioned last week, and uh, this was how... The game will give you a button label for a flight stick input that just says something like button 11. And at at a quick glance, you'll have no clue which one that is on on a complicated joystick flight stick setup. So I got masking tape, the like painter's beige color and dark blue glow in the dark gel pen that that, like (laughs) glows with a kind of neon blue purple. One of those things. That is what I've been using to see these buttons in the dark through the gap of the headset, trying to get a fix on that. What I've (laughs) actually found to be a better solution overall, though, is keeping one hand on your joystick and your other offhand on your keyboard instead. That gives a surprising amount of... um, versatility to where you can move your hands because you can slide the keyboard all around the place to make sure it matches up with your pilot's virtual hands. Gosh, when you get that hand placement matched up in the VR version of the game, it is it is a sublime moment of presence. When when you see your hands matching up with the pilots and how the cockpit is is a mechanically moving part of the game that your head interacts with in a meaningful way. It it really comes together like like few games I've played before. It feels like craning your head around to uh, track these targets is is something they want you doing deliberately as part of the design too. Considering how many missions are, are taking place in outer space with enemies coming at you from all angles, it's 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 a grand fun time. I I have yet to try it, but I'm really excited to when I get a moment to. I need to set everything back up, and that's been kind of what's holding me back. So, but. Considering how much you're freaking going on about it, I am very excited. Yeah, yeah. The one big complaint that I keep hearing is that it's supposed to feel sparse for what you get out of the the amount of content there is here compared to the old games. But I'm feeling fine in regards to that. I guess I uh, I'm I'm conditioned not to ask for a whole lot after 26 years of waiting for something like this. But it feels like. Like, like the campaign is definitely shorter than mid 90s era TIE Fighter, but mm. it still covers 
two different styles of crafts that were two separate entirely different games back then it uh is is a story that's not done poorly considering that they're making disembodied floating boxes that are just <laughs> drifting through space into characters it could have been a, a lot worse than the kind of enjoyable cheesy star wars feeling narrative i'm enjoying here i'm i'm still <laughs> impressed it it's got uh the, the those exhaustive multiplayer options i haven't bumped into but what i was surprised to find out is that it also has exhaustive options for obstacle courses or bot match training um you can pop open a menu and put together a difficulty ordered list of enemy craft to fly in and occupy however long it takes for you to feel comfortable before going in the campaign it's it's a lot of what I was expecting is there. It seems fine. I'm excited to try. I gotta set up VR again. It's not. There's not a lot of space here, but it's it's a sit down game, so it, it should be all right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely they 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 just straight up cut you to black if you try to like peek outside of the cockpit and poke your head into outer space too. So so they know you're just gonna be sitting with a with a invisible bubble around you for your play area. <sighs> I'm. There's so many good games to play at the moment. Yeah, you know, so many good games like Genshin. Genshin. Genshin, Genshin, Genshin Impact. Impact. What an amazing game Genshin. that is. Why'd you say Sin? I don't know. Genshin. I, I usually call it Gacha Impact. Is it Gacha, Gacha Impact? That's a fair name. That's okay, that was a better better joke than the one I had. <laughs> That's what I usually call it. Yeah, yeah. I played a lot of that. That was a uh, that was a that was that was a good fun few hours. I watched part of your first stream that you did playing it, and I started playing it myself. And I got maybe an hour in, and I was like, "This is not for me." <laughs> and uh, there's a lot I don't. I, there's a lot that's going for it, but like, I don't like the controls. I don't like the combat. I don't like a lot going on with that. It's a peaceful checklist game it's a peaceful, peaceful checklist, checklist game. oh those are my fate i love peaceful checklist games yeah, peaceful checklist, checklist game we are back with uh greg kasavin of supergiant games hello Hello, uh, and 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 welcome to our um, lovely, <laughs> lovely little podcast corner of the internet. Hopefully, the questions we have for you won't be uh, too too much of a retread from Q and A that, that you guys have done before. But you uh, just put out the the <laughs> what, what are we going to call it? The final version of Hades, the complete version out of early access. What's the terminology? Yeah, we we just say version 1.0, although I guess if we're <laughs> to get technical, it I don't know that it was ever version 1.0 for even a moment, but yeah. It's the we exited um early access. Yeah, it's our it's our official launch us officially saying game is done. So after after more than um, congratulations thank you very much yep, yeah it's yep. been it's been a it's been a long road i uh, longish road you you guys are are going through a a glut of of positive positive news positive reviews all 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 across the board and i hope uh <laughs> i hope our little contribution does 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 something to the pile oh thank 
But um, on on <laughs> on our way there, I thought I thought it would be really really fun to to nab you in particular because because in in many ways, I mean, I I, I regard you as as a man after my own heart. You uh you began this this journey of yours as as a reviewer, as an editor, yeah. as part of the media, right? That's right. I, I I wanted to start us off by asking a bit about what that journey was like when when you were growing up. Did you want to become a game reviewer or did you want to become a game developer? And how did one of those careers transition into the other one? Yeah. Um. So I I did um I did want to be a game developer first and foremost. It's like one of those moments that to me is still quite clear in my memory. I was uh, eight years old playing a game called Ultima 4 um, on an Apple IIc computer. And um, Ultima 4 is like basically kind of the ancestor to games like Skyrim or Witcher 3 is a big open world RPG where you could do anything and face the consequences of your actions. Um, and, and I think a lot of modern computer role-playing games still like uh, kind of their DNA comes from the Ultima series. But as an eight-year-old kid, this game was like, it was like mind-blowing to me. Um, and I had been playing other games, you know, I've been playing games since as long as I can remember. Uh, but that was the one that really like kind of opened my mind to what, to just how much they could do. And I didn't know how it was made. I just kind of had a vague sense that like a human being made it, like the creator's name was actually on the box um, and stuff like that. So um, I, I knew I wanted to do it. But as I grew uh older and kind of tried dabbling in programming, which was kind of the obvious way into game development. Uh, it was really difficult for me. I really struggled uh, with it um, and kind of on numerous occasions. I know the feeling. <laughs> exactly the same. Yeah, I tried to knuckle down and yeah, learn programming and just kind of hit a wall, just could not wrap my head around it. But I loved, I loved writing um, and writing came I guess more naturally to me, um, you know, when you're when you feel like you're competent at something, it's easier to enjoy that thing. So in high school, I started writing about games because I I was spending so much time playing them. It was like I felt like I had to do something productive with it. And this is back when like fanzines still existed, like actual like printed, um, you know, we we'd like send these things in the mail uh, to people. The, it was early days of the internet, but still like printed fanzines and stuff started working on a fanzine that led to small um like freelance writing opportunities which led to an internship at GameSpot which had just launched uh, back in 1996 and I I had just started I think my first year of college at that point so it was like a part-time gig um and I didn't I ended up staying there for 10 years and this was after like a couple of years of kind of doing it, like started my own little website other game writing stuff and that went by really fast, but I realized I was like no closer to uh, getting into game development. So I, it was one of those things where I knew that if I never tried it, I would, I would regret not having tried it, and probably I would fail, and I could maybe come crawling back to being a game critic. But I finally got my shot in 2007 when I went to go work at Electronic Arts uh, in in Los Angeles on the Command and Conquer series. And that's where I met a couple of the guys I'm working with now still uh, all this all this time later. But I completely glossed over the actual like game writing part. Uh, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have done that for more than 10 years if I didn't love it uh, also. But like I said, kind of, I, I just felt like I really needed to take a stab at uh, game development to see how that went. So one thing I don't think I've ever asked you, Greg, I mean, I've asked you a lot of questions over the years, but like, 
did you ever feel it was hard to go from a, a game reviewer into a game developer? Like the the sort of like, oh, nobody's going to take me seriously because I've done this job for a, a long time. Like, you know, the sort of, uh, yeah. not, not elitism, but, you know, within game development, we read a lot about people writing reviews and like they're sort of, they maybe sometimes they think they have an understanding of how the development of a game went when you internally are kind of like, psh, these people yeah. no nothing right did you feel like oh maybe that's is going to be a bit a bit tough no for uh, for sure i know i know exactly the the kind of attitude you're referring to mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. it can kind of come from come from either direction i think yeah. what really helped me was that um by the time i left gamespot i was i was editor in chief and that meant um a lot of my job like like the part where i was still reviewing games was the part where my my superiors over there were were trying to like get me to stop doing all that stuff but that was like at the heart of what I loved about it, so I I just didn't want to, I didn't want to let that go. But my main responsibilities were like on on the quote unquote the product side, right? Like on the website itself, and I was collaborating closely with um, our our production team, uh, an engineering team, an art team, a sales and marketing team. So basically, like running a team at that point, a lead of a team. So you already had some understanding of people management and that kind of stuff. Not just that, but like even at a high level, like GameSpot, it's a, like, it's a software, it's piece of software, right? That <laughs> it's runs a website. On, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that runs on it. Yeah. So, so I think that, <laughs> I think that experience actually like really helped. That was more direct uh, preparation and experience for game developer, for game development, because I started as a producer, which has a weird definition at Electronic Arts, but still it meant that I got to kind of get involved with, a variety of different teams mm. there working on the same game and and I think that experience uh helped me make the transition uh fairly smoothly. I was just so like excited to be part of game development that I I don't I would like to think I don't have like a chip on my shoulder about it. So when when there was like random stuff that needed doing, you know, they need to write readme files or or like man, no one wants to write unit responses for the for the little units which i have no idea why they wouldn't want to do that because that's one of my favorite parts of working on real-time strategy <laughs> games but like any any little thing that that needed kind of pitching in i was i was happy to contribute and just try to make myself useful without getting underfoot basically so that that was the strategy like be helpful don't be annoying you know ask only Say so yes many to questions everything and yeah i mean yeah to the extent you can, but I mean, thankfully, I had, uh, um, you know, like folks, folks who were there, they they really helped kind of guide me through it in the early days. Uh, my former colleague uh, Amira Jami, I used to work with him at Gamespot, and he's he's like he told me about the opportunity at EA to begin with. So I I like couldn't have done it without him uh, personally, and he you know helped showed me the ropes and introduced me to members of the team, all this kind of stuff that really helped me. Uh, feel welcome there when yeah i mean it's certainly a big change going from working at one place for 10 years to all of a sudden like here's you know 150 completely new people to have to learn and interact with and all that it's a it's a big shift yeah over the years have you felt like there was any kind of dissonance or conflict between your inclinations towards creative writing stuff versus the methodical more mathematical coding and stuff that might have put you off of game development earlier in life but i I, i've heard that nowadays programming has gotten a lot easier that that it's just kind of easier to engage with game development software from from a more creative artistic skill set or interest set rather than the 
the the mathematical logical ones. Yeah, I, I mean, there's certainly a lot more like well-formed disciplines now that contribute to games. Like back, you know, when I was eight, games were made by like solo creators uh, for the most part, and maybe very small teams, but you didn't have like an art department typically or like an audio department, right? Like it was just typically one programmer who was also the designer and made all the all the graphics and that that sort of thing. Um, as games expanded, these different kind of sub disciplines that that go into making games all grew on their own to where now you could spend a lifetime just you know trying to master three D modeling or or like sound design or like any little slice of game development is its own kind of infinitely deep uh, branch. So there are many more ways uh, to get in now, I would say. And and even just like as a as a prospective more directly to your question, as a prospective designer, you know, you have these tools like um like the Unreal Engine or Unity where, you know, they're they're free. There's nothing stopping you from learning those tools other than, you know, spending tons of time learning them, <laughs> um, which is not trivial at all. They're like, mm -hmm. they're sophisticated, you know, professional quality tools, um, which means that they take a while to learn. They have a steep learning curve, but they, but, you know, it's, it's not the days, you know, back in the 2000s where the Unreal Engine license cost like a million dollars or whatever it was. And it was obviously out of the reach of individual creators altogether. So now um, I, I think the barrier to entry to start making games is strictly lower than it's ever been before. 100%. However, um, th there's a counterpart to that, which is, of course, that the competition, you know, is is higher than it's... The, with, with the higher accessibility um, comes like tons and tons of extremely talented people all learning how to make games at the same time so it's hard it's hard to as a as an individual creator it's it's hard for your work to stand out and there are a lot of people all across the world working extremely hard uh, to try to get into this stuff so um it's it's a different sort of trade off but but i think i think like for people for people thinking about like wondering, you know, I think maybe I want to make games like you can answer that question for yourself, um, which I think is really exciting. Um, and the answer might be no, you just love playing games. Um, you, you don't love making them as much, which is completely fine. Uh, mm. But you shouldn't. I would hope that people don't kind of go through life sort of harboring the kind of what if because you can you can actually go and find out, you know, take some take some weekends or yeah. Uh, yeah, just learn it, right? You know, it's funny we were talking about this earlier. Matt, obviously, Matt, you recently <laughs> jumped into sort of your own little game dev adventure, yeah, right? Yeah, game maker action. Uh, yeah, you've been doing <laughs> the game maker stuff. And I think it is that case. And I think, you know, obviously, having worked in the game industry for a certain period of time now, even though being new myself, it is that case when people ask, like, how can I get into it? What can I do? It's like, well, I don't know. Like, you can start now. You yeah. can Google a YouTube tutorial that says game maker tutorial how do I do this? And just follow that. And then you, even if it's not the most extensive of tutorials, you will find out if you like it, if you like the tools and, and what parts, like, is it making pixel art that you like? Is it yeah. making animations that you like? It, making the sounds that, you know, you will figure these things out. And I think, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, it's a lot more approachable. And if you want to take it more seriously, the only downside to that is that the competition is higher than it ever has been ever, which is stressful. Yeah, I, I love I love Game Maker too. Like Game Maker is is a great one because you you can spend just an evening, you know, 
like with the initial game maker tutorials and you will make like a basic game um in that in that very same evening yes you will yeah that teaches some of the fundamentals of like what a sprite is and what you know collision is and what input yeah. is and these kind of things that like the thing about games that's really you know you like every everything like everything is hard nothing comes free <laughs> nothing is trivial um one of the big surprises for me at electronic arts was like one of the hardest things on the entire so we we're making this big sprawling real-time strategy game red alert 3 that was the first full game i worked on because uh, when i joined on command and conquer 3 it was toward the end of development already on red alert 3 for all the stuff we did co-op campaign you know like like sophisticated artificial intelligence multiple factions dozens of different units one of the hardest things was like the menus putting <laughs> buttons on the screen so you're not like it sounds unbelievable right like how when you play games like the idea that the menu is really hard to build amid everything else is like it's like unthinkable but i i think it's like not that uncommon of a story and getting menus it's, that like yeah 100% work correctly and feel right it's really hard <laughs> i can tell you from personal experience so that's one of those things like as a game player you would just never expect that that among everything is is so damn difficult but it to me it's a good it just goes to show yeah nothing nothing comes free um even small stuff is can be pretty tricky i don't know if this has been asked before but i got a big crush on logan cunningham yeah. Because I played, I remember playing Bastion on Xbox 360 way back. And just the voice carried me through that game, the writing and everything. And I remember looking up at the time that he was a roommate. Yeah, he was Darren Korb's roommate. Um, and Darren Korb is our audio director and, and composer and also, also now voice actor. Incredible voice actor. Yeah, they were, they were both rooming together in New York. In the Bastion days, neither of them had worked on games before. Uh, they were both friends with Amir Rao, uh, our studio director and one of the co-founders of Supergiant. And Amir's, you know, starting with just two people. It's just him and Gavin. And then, like, you know, still kind of on a, on a shoestring budget trying to make this game. But realizing, you know, we need art and we need audio, like, at certain points <laughs> in development. So when it came to audio, he... You know, he'd been in bands with with Darren, and he he and Darren and Logan, you know, played soccer together in middle school. He knew Logan <laughs> had this like theater background. Basically, just calls him up, right, and and just says, uh, yeah, like, yo, Darren, could you do some music for us? Maybe some sound effects. And and with Logan, you know, we we had this idea about Bastion that we wanted it to have like a narrative component um, for for a variety of reasons, but we we really wanted the narrative to like unfold at the player's pace and not sort of interrupt play with with the kind of traditional cutscenes or any of that kind of stuff so you could just play as quickly as you want and uh, the narrative would kind of unfold around you and we're like how do we how do we even do that and the idea of using narration you know that was like an experiment that um Amir ran early on had Logan record some lines and from there that happened to like dovetail into the story ideas and you know we we're always going to have this mysterious caretaker of the bastion it's like wait the whole story could be told from this guy's point of view logan just nailed this voice um and the moment we put it any of it in the game it was like whoa suddenly the game 
had still had no art in it or anything. But as soon as Logan's voice was in there, it started to feel like a place. It started to feel like something significant was going on. So it was a pretty dramatic effect. So from there, we're like, okay, I guess we should just keep putting more of this um, until the game is over. Um, not because the moment we ran out of narration, it was like a deflating feeling. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, the story, the story ended. It's funny because all these years later, Hades's approach to narrative is, is much the same, really. Mm. People are like, whoa, these characters never seem to repeat themselves. It's like, that's because we don't want you to have that moment <laughs> yeah. of like disappointment where like, oh, you know, I guess that's all Achilles has to say. I guess I don't need to talk to him anymore. It's like, what? They're not alive anymore. Yeah, they that's right. Yeah, they, they, um, yeah, it's that moment in games, like even in really high fidelity AAA games, like you run out of dialogue, you know, you hit the A button one too many times on a character, they start to repeat their lines. It's like, oh, okay, that's all this guy has to say. He's an NPC yeah. or whatever. Like, we don't want you to have that moment, ideally, and keep you kind of immersed in the world. Uh, Logan has been in every one of our games uh, yeah, as a principal. I, yeah. He's He's been now, I think, like about 14 different characters across four different games. So yeah, he has he's six different characters in, in Hades. So he has an incredible range. I didn't know his range was that deep. <laughs> Him being Achilles, I did not know. It's, uh, yeah, he played, I think, five characters in Pyre as well. Yeah. So he's he's yeah. both, like, to give you an impression in, in Hades, he's both Achilles and Lord Hades. So you could go yeah. from talking to one of the most supportive, like, kind-hearted right. characters in the game to one of the most, like, antagonistic <laughs> characters, you know, within, they're only about uh, 10 meters away from each other or so in, in the world. I wanted to ask if the idea for the narrator in Bastion came from your days reviewing at GameSpot, or if there were any life or game design lessons that that might have been sparked while while you were writing reviews that ended up getting employed for actually making games a few years later. Yeah, it, it's you know I also like uh, I'm I'm an English major. I studied uh, English at the at the university level. I think um, my interest in narrators partly is from that. Um, you know, like studying works with unreliable narrators like The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This is these kind of old timey novels, but they they kind of pioneered. Um, some of what it means to have an unreliable narrator and, and kind of played with the form and discovered what the form can do. Um, so that, like, there's there's kind of a literary side of it that is influential to me. Um, and we also drew very, very kind of deliberately from uh, Cormac McCarthy's work, um, just kind of for the tone of it. We, we thought it was funny to think of, like, Cormac McCarthy, instead of writing these, like, deep, deep kind of Southern Gothic novels, like, what if he wrote little Zelda games instead? Um, and, and just kind of, like, emulating what that might sound like. Huh, that's surprising. Y you know, because um, Cormac McCarthy comes up like in reference to really gritty, yeah, Last of brown, Us, right, right, like a uh, desperate revenge fantasy. Not even fantasy. The key difference is like you take a big, uh, what do you call it? Like almost like a like a syringe or turkey baster type thing, and you kind of like suck all of the evil out of Cormac McCarthy's work. <laughs> yeah, that was the key yeah. difference. We we I, I I had no interest in telling. Uh, very cynical uh, stories because and not not to say sorry cynical is maybe um, an uncharitable way of characterizing they're they're very dark right they're they're works about like you said they're about revenge they're about like the the darkness that lives in in people's hearts and these kind of like awful 
things that happen and they're they're amazing stories um in in some cases but not the kind of stories that i personally um and am interested in telling in part because they already exist thanks to cormac mccarthy um and and others influenced by him but back to game stuff you know for sure playing games like uh, max Payne and prince of persia the sands of time those are games that did really interesting stuff with narration they use narration kind of as part of their storytelling tool set in our case, we're like, what if that's it? Like, what if that's all we use? Um, and just carry the narration all the way through. And it was it was a bit ironic to me that Bastion got like a lot of credit um, for its use of narration because I'm like, dude, just play Max Payne or Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. Like other games have done cool stuff here. But I think the way we used it so extensively did ultimately uh, stand out uh, for, for players out there. I think maybe not being the main character and having... yeah. It's almost like uh, when you play games, the narrative bond between the player and the main character is always so atypically video game, right? It's like either you are the silent protagonist and you're playing a game or you have a main character telling you what's going on. And with Bastion, it was almost like this ethereal ghost that was accompanying you on that traditional bond of video games, which is, you know, the silent protagonist and you playing along. And then there was almost like this invader that people were not used to. This guy who was now telling you what you, the player, were experiencing, but also what was happening to the main character at the same time. And I think that's maybe why Bastion stood out so strongly, alongside, of course, the quality writing that went with it. But it was like that breaking of a very typical bond, that almost that third-person narration didn't really exist. That's a good point, because in both the examples I brought up, those are both, you know, Max Payne is narrated by Max Payne and Prince of Persia, the Sands of Time is narrated by the prince. So it is it is a pretty big it's like and that's kind of back to the um, the unreliable. We, we do a little trick in Bastion, which is we make him seem like an omniscient narrator, like a tradition, like he knows everything you're doing. But over the course of the story, what was exciting to us was this kind of like slow revelation that. You know, he's he's just another character in this world yeah, and yeah. he doesn't he doesn't him. have complete information and you the player, you know, in some cases have more complete information than even the narrator does, and we thought that would lead to some interesting moments in the story. So yeah, again, kind of playing with that format. The moment that always set the tone with me and whenever I saw anyone else play Bastion for the first time is when the narrator says, Wait, not like that. We gotta do it again, when the character had dies and retries. Like it's reactive in a way that acknowledges the player behind the screen pressing the buttons like like it's it's a huge dose a, a drip feed of fourth wall breaks that that i think were fairly fairly unprecedented yeah th- though that though that moment in particular i i would i would give like full credit to prince of persia the sands of time to wait a minute that's not how it happened <laughs> yeah exactly that's not how it happened it's it was great like it was a uh, it was one of the first you know we've we've been very interested in like player failure in all our games like the moment where you screw up and lose um has been something that we think a lot about in each of our games um and prince of persia the sands of time i think was like one of the first games that springs to mind for me where it like it like acknowledged something about it it didn't just use the contrivance like the accepted contrivance of like well you just go to your checkpoint or well you just have extra lives because that's just how games work in that game it was like suddenly there was this almost fourth wall breaking moment the 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 framing narrative comes into focus he's like oh that's not how it happened i didn't actually die there i screwed up like let me let me go back and it was like whoa that's really cool you just did this small thing it works just like any other video game you still go back to your checkpoint but like a little bit of 
a kind of narrative support on this moment. And here I am talking about it, you know, 20 years later, right? Yeah. Like it, it stuck with me. Um, so we, we look for, we've always felt like, you know, the, the role of narrative in our games is like to, to enhance the design um, in, in that way to like provide context to things that maybe are otherwise like taken for granted. Like you could justify almost anything um, in the world of your game if you like develop a world where, you know, when, when you have a world, it has its rules. And when it's your own world, you get to make up what those rules are. So we just kind of approach it that way, I think, in each of our games to, to varying degrees. So to change gears a bit, when in in your personal life did your interest in Greek mythology develop? And when in your professional life did you decide to invest it into big money game project? <laughs> yeah, um, the, I, 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 I scoff because, of course, it wasn't a, you know, we, we didn't anticipate necessarily big money game project at the start. <laughs> but, um, the you know, my interest in Greek myth probably geez, it's probably right around that same time I was playing Ultima 4, come to think of it. I, I still have this book, but um, I forget the name exactly. There was a little book I had as a kid that's like like Hercules and other tales from Greek myth. It's like, it, it's basically a children's book that I got, you know, it must have been probably first grade, maybe seven years old. Oh, so like foundational. I was literally in first grade for sure, because I wow. moved around um, and, and I got this book because I, I moved later, I know it wasn't in second grade. So first grade, I still have this book. That was my first access to Greek myth. It's fairly like unflinching, even though it's a children's book. It like, you know, it, because these stories are mostly very harsh, but it has, you know, the the tale of Atalanta and the trials of Hercules. And I think uh, it must have Theseus and the Minotaur in there. It, just a lot of these classic uh, myths. Um the uh, what's it called the the gold uh, the golden fleece like these these kind of iconic stories. So I learned about it at that point. Um, I read more Greek myth. Actually, uh, Russian is my my first language, although I don't speak it very well um, at this point. But I I would read um, like translated Greek myth with with my grandmother in in Russian as a kid and stuff like that, and just always enjoyed it as as part studied it at the school level and high school and then uh and then again at the university level um so i i became particularly interested in in homer in the odyssey and the iliad um i became really really interested in in the iliad and the character of achilles i had wanted to do stuff based on the iliad back in the electronic arts days actually when we were thinking about future projects it was going to be more of like a very loose adaptation but still very much inspired by uh, the story of Achilles um, and the Trojan War. The Iliad was introduced to me as like basically the ultimate war story of all the war stories, saving Private Ryan, you, like, <laughs> you know, Generation Kill, you name it. You can go back to the Iliad as kind of the, the, the prototypical and still perhaps one of the most like just dramatic and, and intense war stories ever told. And it happens to be, you know, uh, quite a quite an early one, so I was interested in it from that perspective and the kind of human drama that goes on there. Um, and then, you know, cut to many many years later at Supergiant, we're thinking about our next project. This is uh, in 2017, a few weeks after we shipped uh, Pyre, our third game, and we we decided first and foremost that we wanted to make an early access game uh, because we just wanted to test our idea sooner. We didn't want to take three years 
just to put something out there and see what everyone thought. We're like, what if we took one year to, to test our idea? Um, and we, we then decided we would make it a roguelike dungeon crawler because that is a format of game that we, we first of all really enjoyed. Um, and second of all, um, felt that we could kind of do the Bastion thing with it. Like basically for all the stuff that people have explored in the format, they hadn't really done too much exploration on what roguelikes could do narratively. Um, so we thought that we could do something interesting uh, with a narrative in, in that genre. And then when it came to choosing a theme, uh, Greek myth came up as something I was personally interested in. I'm like, how about Greek myth? And, you know, turned out <laughs> my colleagues uh, were very interested also. And Greek myth gave us like a bunch of advantages uh, because, you know, I compare it to, to like if you're familiar with Transistor, our second game, you get all these weird functions for the transistor, and they have these names like spark and get and load. That doesn't mean anything at all. Like you have to start messing around with these functions in order to understand what your abilities are, and then you'll be like, "Oh, that's kind of a grenade launcher." So why didn't you just say that? Um, whereas <laughs> in Hades, we have these characters like Zeus and Poseidon. When Zeus shows up to give you powers, you're gonna know instantly what to expect. You know that Zeus gives you lightning. You know that Poseidon gives you water. And it's really, really helpful for a video game to have those like little access points so yeah. that when you start playing it, you don't feel totally lost in the, yeah. in the dark. So that, that was something we looked for. They are elemental in, in like yeah. their representation of that. And that makes a uh, easy to translate rule set to video games in a lot of ways. But one thing that, that I do want to bring up is that they're definitely mates seem to be kind of a zeitgeist going on right now. Since uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey came out yeah. in 2018, we've gone through a year since where Total War Troy and, and now Hades and in a few uh, weeks, Gods and Monsters is coming out all in this very short time of one another. And, you know, I, I just have to wonder, like, there's a lot of a lot of historians and classicists and archaeologists who say that that there is an element of truth behind every mythology. And if some people nowadays are using this this uh, medium of artistry kind of is, is what I consider these these characters and these gods to be, if they're using that to explore some some other kind of deeper truth that uh, this this world of Greek mythology might be might be giving you an outlet for. I, I definitely agree with that. I think there's no other explanation for why um, Greek myth would still be remembered and, and kind of as, as sort of as much of a household name as it were as it is uh, thousands and thousands of years later if it didn't speak uh, to many of us on a, on a, on a very deep level. Um, as to, but, but to address the, the point where there, there's like a bunch of other games made in it that if anything was like you know first of all that comes from the part where uh greek myth is uh you don't have to license greek myth to create yes. a work in it <laughs> very easy it's also public domain yeah 2000 year old public domain <laughs> that makes it a very handy uh, intellectual property to base a thing <laughs> off of um but um similar kind of tying back to some of the stuff we were saying about game development you know, the risk you take is there's a lot of stuff based on Greek myth. And some people, I think very justifiably, when they hear about a new, you, you know, there, there's a new, uh, what is it, like a Netflix animated series oh, that was yeah, just announced yeah. also. Oh, yeah, yeah. of you, Zeus you, or something you, like that. You, you see stuff like that, and maybe you kind of roll your eyes a bit. You're like, An another freaking Greek myth thing. Okay. Um, so the, the, the question you have to address as a creator is why why should your work exist why what are you adding 
to the the larger conversation about Greek myth. And I think you have to maybe you have to be a little bit arrogant in answering that question if you decide to proceed because you you have to have it in your head that like for some reason your work is not unnecessary but that it actually adds something like what what makes you think that you have anything new to say about greek myth which people have been talking about for thousands of years right it's like mm -hmm. that's a bit of an intimidating uh, way to frame the question mm. i personally felt like the rest of us felt like there there was just this sort of dimension of Greek myth that for some reason, I was mostly surprised, like for some reason just felt underexplored, which is the part where the Olympians are a big messed up family. Um, it's not what makes them cool is not their lightning powers and their water powers. It's the part where they're just a big, messy, complicated family that all of mortal kind is at the mercy of. Um, and that is like, um, you know, and then on top of that, with our underworld perspective in Hades, there are all these other so-called chthonic gods that nobody for some reason knows about and they mm. they're amazing you have like nyx who is night incarnate and you have like primordial chaos who's like essentially the big bang personified like man these are these are really out there like amazing concepts but i can't think of um, like modern adaptations of Greek myth that have rendered these characters. Like I've read Percy Jackson, I've seen Clash of the yeah. Titans, I played God of War and Assassin's Creed and all that, and they, they don't really go to these places so much. Um, so we're like, okay, we'll do it. Um, mm. And that's that's kind of why we decided. And then it was specifically the idea of like having kind of a family drama comedy in the setting. The idea of Cerberus as the family dog uh, really is what crystallized kind of the tone um, of our game to us, the you know Cerberus is the notorious hound of hell, but to Hades it's his dog, like straight up. And I, I mean, I have uh, I have Hades right on my desk here. This is a statue actually from Greece. It's like he's just a dude with his dog, right? Like it's, he doesn't he's not scared of Cerberus. Um, so th that like coming at it from that point of view was like really fun for us to think about and seemed very rich uh, to explore. So we proceeded to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's the the element of of dysfunctional family relations that a lot of of reviewers and writers have latched onto and noticed. And one thing that I appreciate is how Hades himself doesn't necessarily come off as is like antagonistically evil. He's definitely a patronizing, abusive, d discouraging patriarch who who is in your way, but it, they don't no one no one seems to revel in the death and misery of Hades like it's a job for them and i think that right. in a way really nicely captures how death and war is a fact of life like car accidents are to us they didn't necessarily envision a way out of of that sort of world they were used to and thus didn't characterize these forces as as objectively evil right yeah they're kind of like um if anything it's it's a worldview uh, that uh, that I actually kind of relate to personally. It's 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 the idea that the universe may not care about you so much. Um, that that like bad things happen and you can't control them. Um, and and you know the uh, like I was saying the other day, it's like you're you're hanging out with your friend in ancient Greece and like. A freaking boulder, whatever. There's like a terrible mountaining accident. Your friend croaks, right? It's like, what you know? Did did the gods hate him? Like, maybe they did, but but chances are they just kind of, they you know, chances are they didn't care. 
Like they just kind of he just got in the way. They didn't know who he was. If if you don't have the number zero and can't like plug that into into productivity and, and algebraic formulas, how else do you explain shitty luck and and the, <laughs> the, the devastation of coincidence? People still believe in like destiny and fate. You know, we still refer to fate in in modern in modern times, right? So that's a really compelling concept that there's like <laughs> some people out there like, nah, dude, all the stuff that you've ever done or or will ever do, it, it's all been like pre-planned, and yeah. um, that's a very compelling idea. I am I am just reminded of how one of your list of of uh, quotas to to unlock uh, new abilities is yeah. called faded prophecy. <laughs> Yeah, the faded list of minor prophecies. It was fun. It's, it's <laughs> minor it, prophecies. Like, These are things that you will do. You know, you will, <laughs> you will escape the underworld. You know, you, uh, using it. it's like okay, I guess. Um, and it, it's a fun uh, way. And we have some. You know, there's some in-world kind of uh, fun jokes at the at the expense of that idea. But it's it it's a fun way of essentially presenting a, a quest log. Right? It's like. D don't act like this stuff isn't going to happen like it will it's just a matter of time before you get there to uh mo move on to a little a little bit of business uh i wanted to talk about merch uh merchandising whenever a new super giant game comes out i tend to buy the soundtracks it's literally happened without a beat every single time is that a significant chunk of of the revenue is that something that really makes or breaks the the studio there that more fans should be knowing about um, um, I, it's not like, a. so our games are far and away our biggest source of business. Um, we're not, we're not about to stop making games and just make merchandise <laughs> to, to kind of semi-directly answer your question. Um, our, our merchandise is there, um, for a few reasons. One is that like, for us, it, we enjoy making it, um, cause we spend, the majority of our time making these like digital games that don't have any physical component at all and it's nice to be able to have some sort of like physical artifact related to them such as a vinyl record or or a poster or something like that so so some of it is is for our own sake and some of it is um most of it of course is for our players they ask for things like this and i think they feel the same way you know if you enjoy one of our games kind of like what you just described maybe you want to pick up the soundtrack and just kind of own it physically um, so it's nice to be able to like accommodate that, I guess. And for us, it's also kind of got a, like a palate cleanser kind of quality. It's just something else to work on that, that isn't the, the thing that we work on, you know, for three years or more. It's, it, at a it's time. almost the, it's almost, uh, I sort of see these kind of things when I have to do them as the sort of exciting, like cherry on top, like you've done the long three year project and these are the exciting little nuggets that you get to think about when you're sort of coming towards the end of a project and yeah you know. it's a side it's a side project exactly so and um i mean we have like it, you know as with anything else it's like we're a small team if only if only we could do everything to perfect quality <laughs> uh at incredible speed that would be that would be awesome and we'd have more merchandise and it would all be amazing and you know whatever <laughs> um it's it, we have to be choosy with that stuff so that leads me into a question that I, I wanted to ask you for a while, which is, I don't know how to frame this because I feel like Supergiant has evolved, especially with Hades. There's something I love so much about mm -hmm. Hades in regards to the art of the characters. I, I, I know Jen Lee is obviously so talented at the studio and everything like that, but it reminds me of the Shin Megami Tensei 
style god like the re- like the representation of how the artist did like japanese shinto gods mm-hmm. and how the sort of like you talk about primordial chaos and i think chaos in their design with the androgynous voice and on top of like the design is so perfect supergiant obviously now have become this uh this top tier quality representation in the games industry like there is there is an expectation now that you guys are the best of the best, especially within that sort of not quite AAA, but definitely not indie anymore studios, you know, where from the start, you know, the start of Bastion to where you are now. Um, and you've become like the the kings of narrative, you know, the royalty <laughs> of like creating these incredible narrative driven games. But there's now all these on- layers on top where Darren's music is incredible. Logan's voice acting is incredible and then obviously the artwork in Hades is beyond incredible. Do you look at yourselves like reflectively and are like wow, we're really good at this. Uh and or do you sort of uh, I I know it's just such a cliche question but like especially like panicking about how do we go on from here? You, is it more like you just trust each other that even on the next thing it'll turn out pretty grand as well? I think we're really like craft focused. And, mm. and okay. like going back to what I said um, earlier, like each of the disciplines that we focus on, I think each of us would tell you that we could spend more than a lifetime uh, trying to improve in. So I don't think uh, like, so the response to Hades has been amazing to us and beyond our expectations, to be clear, like the way that people are talking about it, uh, we feel very taken aback because we know that game development is ultimately about it is heavily about compromise um because if you don't decide to stop working on something at some point you will never be finished uh games are filled with thousands of things that you could spend almost infinite amounts of time on so as a creator you have to make that judgment call of all right i'm moving on and you do that with mixed feelings sometimes you 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 sometimes know that you could have pushed it a little bit farther or maybe it could have been better in this certain way but you have to move on because you have a thousand other things that you need to do and you want to ship a video game at some point before you die um so like i i I think i think we're always thinking about you know those decisions never get easier um and and i i think i i don't think any of us sit around and go oh this is you know oh this is so perfect <laughs> you know yeah. this, this work is incredible <laughs> wow it's still Look how like, amazing the, we are <laughs> the, thing, the thing i say is like i've been in game development like i said since 2007 now not one single aspect of any of this has gotten any easier for me at any point uh i say that with a completely with a straight face in all sincerity it, it is still like j- everything feels just as hard as ever i try to like make myself feel better about that by telling myself well hopefully that's because we keep like sort of raising the bar maybe uh, hopefully we're always kind of reaching for something that is just out either just out of reach or just at the very kind of tips Mm. of our just at the very edge of our reach so maybe that's why it's all very hard this leads into my one of my only other questions because i know george has a bunch about early access and stuff like that which i think is important about this and it leads perfectly into one question i have how do you approach then making a game that is like a roguelike game that you can keep adding content onto 
And, you know, considering the history of the studio and the games you've made, the games that are, you know, the single focused experiences that when they begin and they end, it's kind of it, right? You might have additional stuff that comes on top later, but it's all this story narrative focus that has a beginning and end. And then bang, you're kind of done and you move on to the next thing. How is it that then you've made a game that you've had to continually keep updating through early access to lead into the fact that this game, considering the success you're having now, could go on for another one, two, three years of new gods, new DLC, new biomes, the roguelike, you know, uh, conundrum as a creator, which is I can do an almost an infinite amount of things. How, how do you call quits? on something like that, that you know at this moment now is going to guarantee you some level of success and sustainability for the studio for the next two years and also balance the fact that, and I know this heavily, which is everybody wants to move on to the next thing. Everybody wants to start doing the next project. How how are you guys approaching that now, considering the previous experiences? Yeah, so that uh, you know that I think the narrative, once again, is, is uh, in some respects the key there. Like the, the part of... So first of all, the way we approached it uh, through early access was almost um, approaching the story almost like a like a serial type, of, like a TV show more more than like a movie. Uh, to draw an analogy there, like episodes or something. Yeah, the the early access launch was kind of like the pilot episode, as it were. It set the story in motion. Um, it introduced much of the cast of characters, but through the course of our uh, major updates in early access, we introduced new characters, expanded on the story, expanded on each and every character in the game, um, and and the the story grew substantially. And we always said that the true ending would come uh, as part of our 1.0 launch. So our 1.0 uh, launch included just about the biggest ever like sort of new influx of of narrative content, including a lot of key stuff at the end, like I said, the true ending. Um, so th the to come back to your question directly, the story is very much uh, resolved in our from our perspective more than some might even expect. Like it goes on for quite a while. Mm. From a certain point of view, like there there's DLC already like built into this game because the story goes much farther, I think, than, than players would probably expect. Um, and we held nothing back from our 1.0 launch, um, and we we kind of we kind of said that we we went all in on this. We we approached the ending of the game in the most ambitious way that we could think of. Um, we pushed ourselves to kind of make the most of the idea that we had for it, and and fully deliver on it as much as we could. And 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 that means we're not sitting on a bunch of like DLC stuff that we're going to roll out. Like we don't, <laughs> Let's move into Egypt now. <laughs> what we've said is we're going to, we're going to take a, like after this launch settles, cause we're still supporting the launch. We're working on cross saves and all the, we're still busy with the game uh, for sure. Um, but uh, once that settles down a bit, we're going to take a break uh, cause we've been pushing for a while and, um, nice. and, and then we're going to plan what's next, but there's no foregone conclusion the default assumption should be that the game is uh, the game is complete because that was our goal. Um, it's not it's not like a setup to just sell you more DLC down the line uh, <laughs> or whatever. And and if we do if we decide to even consider stuff like that, uh, we will have to consider it in such a way that sits alongside you know that that that's compatible with what the story is and this big cast of characters and so on. So um, I, I I certainly of course we see the requests that are out there, but we 
we have faith that our players ultimately trust us to make uh, the best decision to make the correct decisions i guess at least uh, on mm. where we should go or uh, i don't know correct and best those are really subjective terms like hopefully players enjoy our games in part because they trust us to work on the kind of projects that are exciting yeah. to us that we think can turn out well so i mean you're never gonna please everybody right you're gonna have people who are like i'm so glad it ended there that was perfect i had a great time yeah now I, I can move on as well and then you have others who just uh you know those people who are playing right now who have hundreds of clears who want that more content and that kind of thing we had the challenge we definitely had to communicate it was really important to us to communicate clearly that like do not assume that we will yeah. just keep uh, having free updates forever or whatever like that is not our plan um until until we come up with a plan you know we we have no additional plans to share and we want for people to be very happy with the game in its current state rather than assuming you know that that are like like if you wanted that experience of of the game you know constantly expanding and growing then then early access was the time to play it because that's how we handled it but the point of launching version 1.0 and calling the game complete was to was for it to actually be complete at that point one thing that i think is super fascinating is what that does to the narrative experience to uh, a player going through a game in early access versus yeah. when it's out fully on launch um i saw a number of different reviews that had a different understanding of the story uh, it seems like a lot of people who came into the game in early access internalized the idea that, to to minor spoilers, that the game was designed to keep you going forever, and that the game having a definitive end gave them a kind of different feel. It reminded me of when um, the Hitman 2016 episodes were coming out, and there was a lot of talk in... Uh, podcasters and pundits who were actually appreciating that they had a week to fully ingest every episode and that they didn't uh feel the fatigue of going into a new level with um with with any with, with a more pressing deadline and um a little bit more of a mental exhaustion from the previous one and i was wondering if this is something you were accounting for when you were writing hades like how early in the process did you know what the final ending was going to look like and was it designed for a more open ending or a final ending from from the ground up yeah so the um the 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 general idea for the ending came very early on the story for hades uh, i had it all outlined probably around february 2018 or so um so that was what like four four months or so into development we we basically knew what the beginning and end of the story was going to be in theory, knowing that an outline is an outline. Um, it's supposed to be high level because you're gonna you're gonna like figure out the details as as you go. I, I always keep my outlines very, very high level because our games take so many twists and turns in development and I need to be able to like adapt the story to what the design to where the design is going. Was that a twist or turn or like by by design for it to have kind of open endings the idea of the open ending was there from the start um that that was like each of our games we've um had like a different sort of design philosophy around around the ending um so uh pyre our third game i i would refer to it as our fallout ending uh because i really <laughs> wanted an ending where at the end of the it's also kind of a fire emblem ending i guess where at the end of the experience <laughs> you just kind of reflect back on 
everything that happened, how your actions affected everybody, the, the world around you. Um, and the, the kind of micro decisions that you made would be fed back to you in this kind of um, very like personalized way where there were, uh, we counted, there were literally um, like hundreds of millions of possible ending permutations in Pyre based on the decisions uh, that you made. Um, and then in Hades, one of the sources of inspiration for me for the ending was, was actually the game Red Dead Redemption, uh, which is one of the Ooh. only games I've played that has a very strong narrative conclusion, yet also really strongly justifies why you can continue play after that point. Because game, like, like open-ended games present a paradox from a storytelling perspective, because like the basic rule of storytelling is that it, at the end of a story, something has to change. There has to be some kind of like world-changing event, a world referring to the world of the story, from which there is, you know, like a point of no return. And that's the whole point of a story. You go from the beginning to a dramatic end. That's why, you know, endings like it was all a dream are considered such a cop-out because it's telling the viewer, oh, we just wasted your time. Just kidding. Nothing yeah. actually happened. <laughs> um, so something has to change. But how does something dramatic happen while also allowing the player to keep going? It seems like a paradox. So you have to come up with something. And, and we, we felt like we had an idea for that. Like I said, I thought Red Dead Redemption did that very dramatically, um, and we thought we had an idea for how we could do that in Hades. Um, basically, like shift the context and make some pretty big changes, but otherwise allow the player uh, to proceed um, with kind of like a new point of view. Um, so we were excited about that early on. Uh, we didn't start developing it, until, uh, but I mean, we've been working on ending-related content for like almost a year now. Uh, it, it's been a lot, but yeah, we didn't you know we had the idea early on we didn't start working on it until later on in development um and then we kind of like um you know we we there were different versions of it we did consider versions were like oh you know we could roll the credits and take you back to the main menu and then you could load your game and maybe just it's more of a new game plus thing or something like that the story falls off it's like nah that's that feels so weak compared to the the kind of bigger idea which was more work um, but it just felt more worthwhile to pursue the way the way that we pursued it. And and after after the so-called true ending where the credits roll, there's a whole epilogue beyond that that some players have have experienced. There's like more than there's a lot that that happens uh, after after the ending. One more thing I want to say about it is we we wanted the ending to be like a stopping point for many players. Like we wanted players to feel like now I can stop if I want yeah. to as a result of several moments in the story that, that are meant to provide a sense of satisfying closure and, and, and completeness. Uh, because otherwise with a game like this, like we, you know, some people are like, oh, it's so addictive. And I always, like, I think people generally mean that in a good way, but I, I'm very leery of the word addictive when it comes to games because there's there's games that can be addictive in a really negative way um and we don't want we have no interest in players just like playing this game forever because they're like addicted to it or what like have a positive experience with it and then move on to some other game um and play it as much you know play it as much as you feel is satisfying and get to these moments in the story where you're like okay i did it and now you can safely kind of walk away which i guess kind of begs the question and, and that is do you think there is going to be a big future for quick close-ended single-player campaigns and in an economy where it's looking like a lot of gamers are going to be signed up to subscription services and 
the uh, uh, the linear single player experience seems to now be dominated by these ridiculously expensive like quadruple A experiences that that you know most of us can't can't really compete in the same league of. You know, I thought like I actually really did think that that was going to be more of a thing, but it hasn't really happened yet. There's like a um you know like way back when there was. Actually, I think this game was kind of longer, but there was the game Brothers Two Sons. It's a fantastic game. I don't think it's super long. Um, no. But yeah, I, I wish yeah. there were more like short form games that just kind of, you know, that that, that don't it, like it's part of the, why we made games like, uh, you know, Bastion and Transistor are, are sort of in that in that spirit, although those are still like, you know, eight hour, six hour types of games. It's not necessarily that short. I appreciate, or when people played Journey, right? I think that was when people were like, oh, there's going to be all these like mm. super high quality, shorter experiences from this point forward. But it didn't really, really happen, I think, as a, as a trend. I would certainly welcome it because, yeah, like <clears throat> when you sit down to play, you know, Witcher 3 or Breath of the Wild or something like that, there's a certain pressure in, uh, maybe not for everyone, for me personally, in the back of my mind, it's like, okay, I'm about to commit to this thing that's going to oh, like yeah. keep me busy for a long, long time. Whereas, whereas if you know you can get through it in a sitting or two, it's like mm -hmm. the, the pressure's off. And we, we did approach Hades that way. Like we wanted it to have like a breezy feel. Oh, you know, it's a roguelike. You're going to play for maybe 20, 30 minutes if you're lucky um, before you die. So don't, you know, don't, don't worry too much. You, you're not really in this. You don't have to be in this for the long haul, like with you know the greatest story ever told from from AAA developer X or something like that. Um, I, I but you know games are like the form is constantly shifting and evolving, right? Like I I think I think what you're saying, you know, even if it hasn't really taken off yet, I still think you know it's very possible it will happen. Actually, VR games do a lot of what you're saying. Um, a, a lot of VR games, I think, are like shorter in general and just kind of like ha present some sort of interesting experience and then get out of the way. Um, I think it's cool that stuff like that is out there. So uh, to kind of add on to that, but a slightly different more towards the early access point was, uh, I mean, we spoke earlier in the show before you arrived about Baldur's Gate 3, of course, launched last week. You know, uh, your former GameSpot colleague, Kevin Van Ord, yeah. being part of that team. Congrats to those guys. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I feel like everybody approaches early access in a different way, especially if you take it seriously as a developer. We've seen a lot of games kind of mold what people's envision of early access is. And as we sort of discussed, I don't know if you've played Baldur's Gate 3 yourself yet. No, um, not yet. I know, yeah. I know you're looking forward to it, but it's very much like it's in early access because it needs people playing it to work out the kinks, to work out the bugs. There's a lot of issues, that kind of thing. But, you know, there's, there's so much content there to be played, but... It is an incomplete version of that game. I played Hades since, you know, its launch, and it never felt like it was an incomplete game and was like that episodic sort of nature about, you know, you could still probably play the first version of that game and have a great time with it and be like, that was worth my money because, you know, it, it's polished, it had wonderful voice acting, it has great art, and it has a great gameplay loop. How early was it that you were like, we're going to do early access, and this is how we're going to do it, this is how this game is going to work out, and what was it you were looking to early access for? Was it just because you wanted the game out as early as possible and then develop it? Or were you like, let's see if people like it and then we'll carry on doing what we're doing? 
Yeah, so you know, early access, like I said, is literally the first decision on the project. We didn't have a theme, we didn't have a genre. Uh, we 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 wanted early access because it would let us test our idea sooner. It would let us kind of stay focused on the the most um, impactful aspects of the game. Like our audience would help us um, navigate our development. Whereas on on projects where we work kind of in, in, in secrecy, what can happen in the middle of development is um, you could have some of that, you know, having trouble seeing the forest for the trees type of thing where you could really start to go deep on aspects of your game that like you actually don't really know if anybody No cares. idea. Just no idea. With early access, if your early access launch isn't a total failure and you actually get a community, then you're going to have a community of players that, that sort of keeps you honest, I guess, that like says what the game is lacking, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, and you're just get, we wanted um, we wanted a more disciplined development where the game was like basically playable uh, all the time through development and in like a shippable state, and we wanted more feedback across all dimensions of the project. And we our our theory was that through early access we could make a, a like a bigger and better game than what we could do on our own, and we um, I I think now. Like, you know, our team grew uh, actually fairly substantially. We were 12 people on Pyre and we grew to about close to 20 on Hades. So we did have to grow in order to get, like, in order to ship something in like a year. Um, mm. But um, I think that, like, the game's, the game's success relative to our past games, like, it's not entirely attributable just to... It's not like... It's like I said, for me, everything is still hard. It's not like I magically just got way better at my job between Pyre and Hades. I did not. Um, so what's what's the delta? And the delta is we grew our team and we did early access. And that, like, if you if you just compare, like, whether you compare by critical reception or by sales or whatever, this game just straight up did better for us at this point. We can we can safely say and like, early access did it. Um, it just it just gave us that, like, we, if we made this game, I can't even imagine what this game would have been like without early access, because like I said, it was like actually just designed around it fundamentally. But if we were to have done it on our own, it would have just been smaller and buggier and less ambitious and just kind of worse overall. We looked at other, to, to another part of your question, you know, there are these games like Dead Cells and Slay the Spire that were sources of sources of inspiration for us on this game we felt they handled their early access developments really well like for, at least mm. from where we sat as like players of their games when i bought both those games around launch they were awesome like well worth my money right from the beginning with the promise that they would only kind of grow and get better from there um and then you know i played them once they had reached their version 1.0 and liked them even better basically so that was kind of broadly those kind of games um, we felt set the standard for what like a great early access experience would be. We wanted to make sure that the game was like worth people's money. It, we're not like borrowing people's money. It's like, yo, this needs to be worth it, r like right now, and and with the promise <laughs> that it will continue to improve. So that that was our standard for it. I, I just want to say I gotta I gotta head out. Phenomenal work, man. Uh, but uh, have a good day, man. Thank you very much. Likewise, thank you. All right, see you guys. See you later, Matt. Speaking of how how much the time is is valued and and what sort of of tricks we can all pull out to 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 drive community engagement, 
Um, I was wondering if we could make time to do a couple of listener questions. Yeah, let's do it. From Twitter, Flying Fox on 1984 asks something that I, of course, would would love to throw in here. Did Kojima had a big influence on you, Greg? Um, I I I love Kojima's games, so I I guess probably yes. I mean, I I think I think uh, I I think Kojima. I guess everybody knows the Metal Gear Solid Death Stranding creator also um, had involvement with the game PT. He could be a polarizing figure, right, in games, but I I think that the I think that the games that he's worked on are one of a kind, and I I'm I'm pretty like to me I. I'm comfortable with like separating the work from the creator in general. I don't know Hideo Kojima personally. I don't know what kind of guy he is, but from the the, the games that he has worked on, uh, have pretty consistently left a strong impression on me for sure, and done really interesting kind of wild stuff that I haven't seen other games do. I I, I think he, I think there are very few creators with like with his level of influence that have the kind of budget that he has, I guess. Like, he's made very unusual games um, with, with like, very high production quality, um, which is, uh, I think, which is quite unique um, in this in this industry. So, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I still remember moments, basically, from, from all those games quite vividly, because uh, they, they've had, yeah. Would you uh, agree with Kojima that video games are inherently postmodern? I don't. Uh, I would need more context on that. Um, like, like I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I like. I wouldn't say that myself necessarily. I don't know. Like, what, what, what does that mean to you when you hear that? It's having me wonder what interview quote got translated into the yeah. word postmodern because right. that. That word can mean a number of different things depending on on the uh, interpretation. Yeah, if he means like that, they kind of are self-referential or like like kind of self-aware. It's the narrator in particular. Yeah, I mean, I I think games are like I like that games are so almost formless uh, compared to other media. They have fewer standards. They're only characterized by their interactivity. Um, and even that is sometimes stretched. Yeah, they could they could be anything. I I don't know. Um, I don't know if that means that they're postmodern or not. I feel like yeah, whatever time we're in now is in like the quadruple postmoderns because everything is yeah. is a weird genre-defying life being the art that art is intimidating. So it's so weird. I don't. I I personally don't feel that way at all. I feel like in games, especially now, we we're, we're in a loop where a lot of games are repeating what older games did. Yeah, in abundance, and we reference old techniques like pixel art and how to make games from multiple different eras across video games and we kind of sort of in an infinite loop are repeating while we are having people who certainly push the ground i think maybe kojima is maybe only one of the people that could say he personally makes game that games are sort of postmodern, but as an industry as a whole i don't think so it's intriguing though someone in discord asks Seeing as how Supergiant has never made a bad game, is there a particularly obscure, offbeat, hardly known work of art, game or otherwise, that everyone calls trash, but you know better? Hmm. I like a lot of bad movies. 
I'm sure the answer, I'd have to let, nothing is springing to mind immediately. I do say that one of the things I miss about working at GameSpot is that I don't really play bad games much anymore. Um, because even if you only play really great games, there's still not enough time in the day. Uh, but at GameSpot, you know, you, if if something's got to be reviewed, you don't really like you you don't know uh, how good it's going to be up front. The thing about bad games is they uh, like they weren't in most cases they weren't intended to be bad. Just something happened, um, and there's probably some really you know there was some ambition there. There was some good idea there that didn't quite pan out. And I think there's more, there's more to be learned, uh, I think, from failure than from success in many cases. Because mm. when when you see when you when I play like you know Uncharted two or something, I'm just like, back in the day, how did anyone make this? I have no idea. This is just people at the pinnacle of their craft. This is impeccable. Oh my God, I'm a failure. Like that's my experience. <laughs> you know, uh, like I play I play Witcher three like wincing the whole time. Like oh man, this is just, this is so good. <laughs> this is how i feel when i play hades <laughs> i'm sorry to transfer that feeling i guess but you you know what i like whereas when you play when you play a bad when you play a game that's like less good you 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 can see what they were going for um and you're like wait a minute that's a pretty good idea they just kind of like you know they didn't they maybe maybe if they did it this way or maybe if they didn't run out of time or something like that so i i i think like mm. I try to never be d disparaging of bad games for that reason. Also, it's like people, it, it's a miracle that any game ships um, because it's so hard just to make something that like people, even a game that you don't like very much, people probably worked really, really hard to, to make it even what it was. I have a lot of respect for so-called bad games, I think for that reason. And I think, I think it's interesting to see what, what different developers go for yeah but i don't know nothing nothing comes to mind as my like guilty pleasure type of game right this second but i you know i grew up watching like watch a lot of like kung fu movies and giant monster movies and that sort of thing that like i think objectively are not considered you know they're not considered the height of cinema or anything but i i, I love them for for what they are yeah someone in patreon named bro wanted to ask uh what working with noclip was like do you think that hades development process changed to it even if unintentionally oh yeah yeah so um we're working with uh danny o'dwyer and uh, jeremy jane from noclip have been documenting the development of hades since our early access launch uh they've they've been amazing i mean i think that they would be really disappointed if we changed our development process to accommodate them because their goal is to like document a process uh, honestly and kind of be a fly on the wall. I think we've been successful in that. Like we one of the ways that we've done it is that we actually do a lot of the filming ourselves and send them the footage. Um oh, so that really? so it's not yeah. like they're just at our office day in and day out and you know following us into the break room or something like that. I was wondering about that cuz just Jeremy's like always there with his camera they've been extremely like professional and respectful just uh, they've they've been amazing and and i think they've made you know people like me uh, since my GameSpot days i'm like more comfortable talking to a camera you know i'm more comfortable talking to a cold camera than talking to a human being uh, quite frankly um but there are other people i work with who 
uh, for whom you know it, it's it's a newer experience, and and I think they made, I think they made everyone feel comfortable, and you know mm. nobody like was kind of was forced to do extensive interviews if they didn't want to do them or something like that. So I I, I think it's been accommodating, and I think has captured. You captured many aspects of the process. Like we didn't know that there was going to be a freaking global pandemic, right? But yeah. our most recent episode of No Clip uh, talks about how we've navigated that. That was like I I actually was super duper curious to know what you thought of remote work. This, this wasn't necessarily a listener question, but something on that outline I ended up skipping earlier. But yeah, um, in in the documentary, it shows you guys transitioning over to remote work fairly smoothly is yeah is that still the case why the hell does so much game development have to happen in san francisco anyway could you see remote work changing changing that maybe getting some more opportunities for people who can't afford to live in one of the most expensive cities yeah in, in the states if not the world right now you know yeah uh, i mean i think i think like um my personal opinion is remote work and game development is is uh, here to stay uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, I think it's always been here. Also, like uh, part of the reason we were able to transition smoothly is because, you know, like we talked about earlier in the conversation, Darren and Logan, Darren's in the Bay Area now, but we, you, you know, he was... Uh, New York, New York. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, our audio director and voice actor being in New York didn't prevent Bastion from happening. In fact, it's the only reason it happened, right? Like, because because Logan was not going to move to the Bay Area to work on Bastion. Um, so we've always um, we've always had at least partial remote work be part of our way of doing things. Um, I'm personally, uh, you know, I I I like it. I guess like I don't love commuting to San Francisco, <laughs> and I don't have to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I just literally get more time that I can spend on work or on some other thing. There's definitely important stuff that happens when you can be in the same physical space as your colleagues. So I don't think I don't think it's like a hands down improvement. And I do worry that something I talk about this I think a bit on the no clip episode as well. I do worry that something important does get lost. And I know for a fact that some of the like little ad hoc, you know, off the uh, like outside of work conversations that have happened at Supergiant are the ones that have led to some of our most important ideas. Like, even though technically we weren't at work, we were just chatting, you know, as friends or something like that, super important ideas came out of that. So I, I, I worry about the world where, like, those conversations cannot, like, how do you replicate those conversations? You know, do you bother, bother someone on Slack? Do you just, like, cold call them or something? So I, I haven't, yeah. Yes, that is exactly kind of, like, it's weird because switching to remote work, personally, I've enjoyed it and I feel like not too much has changed for me, but it's been a lot more back-end support of a project that's just released. I haven't had the, yeah. the crisis yet of how do you design a game without your team around. And I, I feel like what you just said is it's like that desk-to-desk yeah, stand exactly. up, walk over and like, hey, what do you think about robots? Like, what are you thinking about this? And it's like that idea that if you have one of those burst moment ideas that you really need to bounce off somebody else to talk back to you, yeah, you're not going to be like, hey, can I schedule a meeting right. for 2 p.m. so we can all join on a call so I can be like, hey, robots. And I, I'm a little nervous about that. Like, I feel like yeah, 
and you will never know if that's lost. You don't really know anymore if those were the special ideas that you came up when you made that game prior. Uh, but I do worry about it. Yeah, same. I, I think that we, um, such as it is, we got lucky with the timing being what it was because like our work on Hades was mostly cut out for us by the time we all switched to 100% remote work. Um, and I know for a fact that, and, and you know, again, we'll be faced with this, I guess, in the in the weeks and months to come, if and when we sit down to start planning our next thing, like that's going to be different. And and the little, you know, I think we're trying to, yeah, we're at least mindful of this, which I think is probably a step toward um, replicating it. And so I think just like I would just you know email something like email is important for me sometimes. Sometimes I just like back in the Bastion days, you know like a lot of the early ideas it's just emails and stuff it's like man sometimes i have to write stuff down instead of just say it. like i i'm a totally different person writing stuff down than like oh, yeah. you're hearing me hearing me talk it's just one run-on sentence after another but when i when i write i organize my thoughts you know quite quite clearly by comparison that's that's, yeah. that's on on the record forever you gotta you gotta be careful <laughs> yeah so um so yeah we we i don't know how we're gonna replicate that exactly um that's something that people are going to have to figure out i i guess as time as time goes on absolutely such a such a weird time to yeah. have to be alive and figure everything out well uh with with that being said unless you have any any more final thoughts to add i think uh we we touch base on on most of the bases i uh wanted wanted to run you through it was it was it was lovely thank you for the wonderful interview and and the almost decade of of wonderful games yeah, th thank you, intern, very much, and yeah, we we really really appreciate the the support, um, the the kind words that this game is is getting. It was um, like I said, it was not uh, something that we really uh, could have anticipated. That's, you know, you know, yeah, people enjoying it in early access, but uh, we wanted to make sure we stuck the landing, as it were, and ended ended strong on this game, if only to our early access players who'd been with us for so long. Um, so we wanted them to be happy. Uh, primarily, um, and the fact that so many other people are happy is a really nice uh, side effect. It's, <laughs> it's we wanted to make a game that, yeah, it's like it's a game set in the underworld, but you discover that it has some lightness to it. It's more lighthearted than you might expect, and we wanted it to bring players a a sense of contentment and kind of uh, happy happiness, even. And it's been really good to see uh, it uh, being able to do that. So, yeah, thank you very much. It's it's resonating socially because of of the times we're in. I guess that was a happy accident that could not have been for 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 Sawn two and a half years ago. But we did this with with Pyre as well, um, though less so with this game. It's like there, I think that there are enough dark, despairing, bleak stories out there. Like I get it, the world sucks and people are crap. I know it's fine. I don't need another story. To reinforce that to me, I can't work on such a story because it's too—it's too much for me personally. I have to work on stories about people being good to each other, not being bad to each other. And I think that people out there are are lacking for stories like that. Um, so that's the—you know—that that was the little roll of the dice we took. Like, what if what if people want a story that doesn't make them feel terrible? Um, <laughs> and it turns out that. Yeah, they could apparently they could use one of those right about now. So I don't think there was it any works. real prophecy <laughs> there. Um, I, I think it's been happening for a long time with 
I, 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 I think I think uh, uh, Walking Dead and Game of Thrones had like an outsized impact on on modern media uh, to to like sort of create this um, desire for stories that are just really just kind of compete to make you feel bad. Um, and I I I think that some of those stories are really well told and really well executed. But on a personal level, I, I'm I'm I've been a bit sort of burned out on them for for some time. I think. So trying to put the stories into the world that, that we would like to see, that sort of thing. What happened to hope? Hopefully all of our own stories will, uh, will, Turn will, out will all find right. some, some ways to pull up the happiness out of the dark subject matter we're all, yeah, indeed. We're yeah. all going through. <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. Yeah.